are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will give him, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So there's a lot we can take from this very simple parable here. Um, even though the lesson from it is actually very straightforward, even as far as the parables go. Um, the first question we might ask is why the disciples are even asking about prayer. I think on some level, everybody knows about prayer. I think it's a very instinctual um, human impulse that we have when we are living in the world. Um, we're surrounded by all of these terrible circumstances of life. Um, but also the beauty of the created order that God has given us. And in both of these things, whether it's the tragedy of the world and the tragedy of life or the enjoyment of creation and seeing the beautiful mountains or the trees or the forests or anything else, um, both of these things call us in a natural response to pray. We cry out for help in the troubles of the world and we give praise to God when we see these things that are really wonderful. And so... Um, I, I think it's really a universal human experience in many ways. And so on that level, prayer is something that we almost never need to ask about because everyone understands it on some level. But it gets a little bit more puzzling when we spend some time actually thinking about it. Um, when we pause for a moment longer and consider prayer, some questions tend to arise in our mind and sort of nag at us as we think about it. Um, the ones that I put up there at the, the last couple of questions, what is the point of prayer and why should we pray? These are questions that I think nag at us when we start to think about the nature of God and what we're doing when we actually pray. Um, <clears throat> we are neglectful of prayer in this life, and many times um, when things are not going super well or when they're not going super great and we're just kind of right in the middle of life where um, the, the days are passing by one after another without many highs and lows, it's in those moments that we're often the most neglectful of prayer. And uh, maybe you haven't considered these questions before, but if we spend a minute thinking about it, I think we'll see the challenge here. Um, when we consider the scriptures over and over, more than almost anything that you see in the scripture is the holiness and the sovereignty of God in all things. Um, all the way at the very beginning, in the very first words of the Bible, God speaks and things come into being. He speaks again, and he orders the world as he desires it to be. He speaks again, and life comes forth from what he's created. Um, when God speaks, his words come to pass without fail. And furthermore, my printer didn't print like six pages here. Furthermore, when um, God speaks, we see that... Um, and I'm lost without my notes here. When God speaks, we see that the things um, that he says are going to pass actually come to pass. I'm going to bring it up on my phone here as I'm talking extemporaneously. So um, this happens over and over in Scripture, and the point that I'm going to bring up here is actually in the book of Job. So I think this is one of the best examples of that <coughs> that we see in all of the Bible. 
So in the book of Job, um, we see the sovereignty of God unfold in a very powerful way. Um, God is not just supreme over creating things and bringing the world into being. He's not supreme um, simply by just causing things to exist and then leaving it to their own devices. Not, God is not playing the odds with the world, hoping that things are going to turn out in the way that um, he intended. But, you know, there's this chance that things might happen in another way. Um, God sees the end from the beginning and will intervene as he sees fit to cause these things to happen. And um, just one example from the Bible, I think, is a great way to illustrate this, and that comes from the book of Job. So if you all have read the book of Job, you you see the challenge here in that um, Job is having this discussion with his friends, and they're talking about all the calamities that have befallen Job. Um, and how he really has done some terrible sin in his life, and all of this has caused this to happen. Um, But later on, we see that Job finally, out of frustration, cries out to God um, in the same way. And he says to him in Job 38, um, or in the previous chapter before Job 38, he cries out to God in this way. And then God responds to him in Job 38 and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then God proceeds to spend the next several chapters kind of really undressing Job um, in this way and laying out for him um, how ridiculous it is for him to... uh, challenge God in this sort of way. Job knows so little and has such little power compared to God who knows all things and has all of the power. And so finally, after God relents from um, his answer to Job, Job finally responds and says in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. This is a really great example from the Bible of the absolute sovereignty of God. Job realizes that he does not understand the situation and that God does. And in his complaints, he's complaining to God about things that Job really doesn't know about. And so God replies to him that way and makes it very clear that Job doesn't understand what God is doing. Um, But if we see that no purpose of God can be thwarted, then why should we pray? Um, if God really does have authority over the world, and if he does govern the affairs of men, then what use is there in praying? And if God knows the end from the beginning and is truly omniscient in all of these ways, then what are we telling him that he doesn't already know about us? In our prayers, are we declaring something new to God that God doesn't already know? Um, As we start to think about this, it's kind of a challenging topic, and it's going to nag at our prayers and nag as a question in the back of our minds. And I think this is one of the reasons why we don't pray more than we do. The other reason, which some of you have discussed already, is that we don't believe that God's going to do something about our problems, too. Uh, Or we think that we are able to handle it ourselves. Um, Or maybe that there's just despair and there's no hope of the problem ever getting better. Um, But I think we'll see from these parables that um, it's these qualities of God that are actually going to um, be the answer for why we should pray in this sort of way. So returning to our parable this morning, that's the topic of discussion. 
um, we find here this very simple story of this man that goes to his neighbor to ask for bread. Um, this is the scene late at night. A uh, neighbor has a friend coming and visiting from out of town, and um, he wants to show him hospitality, so he goes to his neighbor at midnight and asks him for bread. Um, I, I was at the office yesterday uh, working on this lesson, and Andy Reekers came in with Kate and Olivia to pick up some things there, and then um, they were leaving to go get the truck and leave. And so uh, Andy asked what I was working on. I told him I was writing this lesson, and he asked what the parable was, and Kate and Olivia were standing right there. And I, I explained the parable to them. You know, this is the parable of the neighbor that goes to his friend at midnight to go ask for bread. And the girls go, that's weird. <laughs> Which is a very natural response. That's, I think, what anyone would think in the situation. That's weird. Who would do that? Um, and we know that the Jews were ones who prized hospitality um, as a very high virtue um, in their culture. And we see that even laid out in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19, uh, the Lord writes, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now we see in this story the journeying man is not even a stranger to the man that he's staying with. He's actually a friend. So how much more is he motivated to show good hospitality in this situation? But even then, when we step back for a moment, um, I think we kind of think the same thing as Kate and Olivia and probably the disciples as well, and that this whole thing is a bit ridiculous, right? Um, being hospitable is good and right and all, but um, bread at midnight is kind of silly when you think about it. Um, can this man really not wait another couple of hours and eat breakfast in the morning? Is he going to die if he doesn't eat something there at midnight and he can't eat six or nine hours later? Um, if this were my friend and he came to me at my house at midnight and I didn't have anything in the refrigerator, which I don't, then <laughs> he's going to be hungry until the morning because there's no way I'm going and knocking on someone else's door to do that. And so, um, especially for something as trivial as getting bread, I think we would all understand and we would understand rightly that um, if a neighbor came to us at midnight and there was some terrible accident and someone was going to die, there was some great tragedy or some emergency that needed handling right in that moment, be more than happy to interrupt our sleep and go do the things that we need to do in that situation. Um, but this is not something like that. This is very trivial. He's going and getting a few loaves of bread. And so I, I think this is actually a deliberate choice of Jesus in this story. Um, the neighbor is not going to ask for some help in some great calamity, but he's asking for something very mundane and very trivial to do this favor that he doesn't really need to do for a friend that's visiting him. Um, and so we see through the story he goes and knocks on his door at midnight and um, pleads with his neighbor and is very persistent about it. And his neighbor finally gives in and gives him the bread, even though he says that he's not going to do so. And the reason why is not because he was feeling particularly kind or particularly friendly um, or that he really wanted to do this favor for his friend, but because he was tired and didn't want to be bothered anymore and wanted to get some sleep that night. And so he relented and got up and gave the man his bread purely out of his own self-interest. Um, and so the, the point in this story is that the, the neighbor that's going to ask for the bread is very bothersome. Um, he badgered his neighbor, in, his neighbor into meeting his needs. Uh, there, there's a word that's not used very often in our um, 
vocabulary, but it's often used to describe this sort of thing, and it's the man importuned his neighbor. I don't know if you hear that term very often. Um, but it, it sort of describes someone who's harassing in a manner that's really unreasonable or at a really inconvenient time. Um, and it might help understanding it more. It's related to this word that we do use a lot in our language, which is opportune or opportunity. And that means something that's happening at the right time, a seasonable time, a convenient time. It's a good chance to do something. That's an opportunity. It's an opportune moment. Importune is when uh, something is not opportune. It's the opposite of that word. And so uh, his neighbor is going and asking his man for this bread at the worst possible time. It's at midnight, and he's going to get bread. And so what does all this teach us about God? <clears throat> we see really often in the parables that God is illustrated by one of the characters, and we are supposed to put ourselves in the shoes of another character here. Um, in this parable, no one is really cast in the role of God per se. Uh, the neighbor that eventually relents to uh, the man coming to ask for bread um, is meant to stand as an extreme example to demonstrate the more modest point that God will likewise answer the persistent prayers of his people. Um, God is not like the neighbor who is going to begrudgingly give in to the demands of uh, the man that comes to ask for him, but rather God is someone who delights in answering the prayers of his children and rejoices in giving them the good gifts that they so desire. Um, he's like the father that is described um, in the verses after this parable, where is not, he's not going to give his son um, a snake because he asked for a fish. The father is giving his son a good gift because that's what fathers do to their children. And so in the same way, God does that to us when we go and ask him, especially when we ask persistently. And this point is so important that there's actually a parallel passage in Luke that we're going to cover really quickly as well that teaches the same point or nearly the same point um, in a different parable that's um, almost identical. So turn with me to Luke 18 really fast, and we'll read this parable as well. The first eight verses of Luke 18. <clears throat> now he was telling them a parable to show them at all times that they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming to me, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? <clears throat> and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? <clears throat> so this parable is very similar in structure and in teaching to the one that we just read. In a similar fashion um, to the man asking for bread, we see here the woman protesting to the judge, and the judge ultimately yields to her um, in the same way that the neighbor ultimately yields to the man coming and asking for bread. In some ways, this parable is even a more extreme example of that because um, while the man was going to ask a friend and his neighbor for bread, um, this woman is asking an unrighteous and wicked judge to give her protection from an adversary. It's not a trivial matter, it's an important matter. And she's going to a man that she is ostensibly not friends with, but a man that's actually very wicked and doesn't regard God or man. 
And so, again, by way of this extreme example, the Lord is demonstrating to us um, that even a man as unrighteous and uncaring as this judge will ultimately give in to the persistent woman um, as she desires. And so, in the same way, God will hear the persistent prayers of his people. He's not unrighteous or uncaring like this judge is, and he has great regard for himself and for man, and he will give them what they so earnestly desire and what they so frequently ask to receive. Now, the question that I think comes for us in these parables is how these relate to our questions that we asked at the beginning here as well. The point of these parables, at least at at a high level, is that we should pray persistently for things. If there are things that we want and there are things that are good and that are aligned with the will of God, we should ask for them and ask for them frequently. Um, And that God is going to answer those prayers because we are persistent in that praying. But the question still nags at the... Um, in the back of our minds here as we think, well, why do we do this? What's the point of this? If God already knows all of these things, um, then why are we bothering with this in the first place? And um, if God's counsel is not going to be moved and God truly is omniscient, then why are we um, spending any time even talking about this? I think we see a glimpse of this in the last verse of the second parable here. Um, Jesus again says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The implication here, and I think part of the answer to the question, is um, that really getting at the heart of prayer and one of the hearts of Christian beliefs in general is... um, that God does not require anything from us in prayer. He's not learning new knowledge or something that he didn't know. And he's not changing his counsels or his will by the fact that we pray. But nevertheless, when we pray, we are joining him in um, his plan for the world as an instrument to be used by him. And we are demonstrating our faith in him and that we have problems that we trust God to be the one to solve. Do not underestimate, I think, the importance of this point here. This is, I think, at the heart of understanding our relationship to God and also his purposes here on the earth. There is, I think, a certain kind of man who is um, indifferent to being a part of God's plan. We can call this person a a sluggard or a a lazy man, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. God has demands of his people, and he's seeking to accomplish certain things in the world. But we can sit back and say, well, that's really for God to do, and he's not asking us to participate in that. And if God is sovereign over all things, why are we bothering to even trouble ourselves with this um, day to day? And, And this really has a dampening effect on the way we live out the Christian life and our view of our agency in the world, and it affects how the world turns. Um... The best example of this I can remember reading about is uh, William Carey. Some of you may have heard of his name before. He's described as the father of modern missions. He was a a British shoemaker, a cobbler. And um, he went from Britain to India as the first really modern missionary, as we think of the word, to bring the gospel to that continent. And um, the pastor of Carey's church when he had um, heard that Carey was planning to undertake this sort of endeavor and had formed this board to govern the mission there and to finance it and all of the things that go into that, when the pastor heard these words, he said to Carey, sit down, young man. 
when God wants to reach the nations, he'll do it without your help. And this sort of attitude, it came to be known as hyper-Calvinism, but this sort of attitude had stymied the cause of missions for centuries. And it was this sort of absurd thought that God would just save the lost without using any of us in the process there. And um, I think we can have the same attitude when it comes to prayer a lot of the time as well. Um, and this danger is something that I've remarked on before, and at the risk of just repeating myself too many times here, um, I want to say the point and underscore it one more time, because this point has been one of the single most important things in my life for understanding the scriptures and in my personal reading of them. And it's that the Bible gives many instructions and many teachings about the nature of God and our obligations to him. And the wise man is going to read the scriptures taken together as a whole, the whole counsel of God, all of his testimonies throughout the scriptures when weighing a particular, a particular action or a particular course before us. Um, that sort of man is going to maintain a balance, or, or the term I like to use is a tension in what God teaches through his scriptures. Very often the Bible is going to teach us two things that seem to pull at each other a little bit when we read about them. God is asking us to pray, but also God is omniscient and knows all things. And these things tend to pull at each other a little bit. Um, but if we fear too far to one direction or another, we lose the truth of scripture that's taught throughout the entire thing. And we stray off of that level road through the middle of it too far into the left or to the right and into a ditch. And we can wreck our lives and cause chaos for so many in the process. And so a proper understanding of the Bible and of the whole Bible is essential to understanding how we ought to live here. And so I think this point will illuminate um, our view of prayer too. Carrie was willing to go participate in the evangelization of India. Um, he wanted to be a part of God's plan and took agency in bringing the gospel there, even though God was sovereign over that process from the very foundation of the world. And so Carrie took agency in this process and went himself, but at the same time had full confidence in the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. And these twin beliefs are really tied up in his motto that I think some of us have heard before. Um, it's still a fairly popular phrase today, but Carey's motto for their mission was expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And I, I think we can almost take that motto and apply it to our prayers too. Um, and so I want to give one more example as being used by an instrument of God to then decide whether we want to be an active instrument of God or one that's passive and unwittingly used by him. Um, as we see so often in the Bible, we can either choose to be a part of God's plan and a part of his outworking of his designs for the world, or else um, we can be the tares in the field that grow up next to the wheat, or we can be the vessels of wrath that are designed for a certain purpose but are ultimately destined to destruction. And so the question is, will we do the bidding of the master willingly or will we do it unknowingly in the process? Um, and, and the example I heard a long time ago, but it, it really struck me, came from uh, the prophet Micah. I think a lot of us are familiar with the story in Micah or the, the prophecy that he foretells the location of where the Lord is going to be born. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so it's kind of strange to think about 
that uh, the prophet here is saying that the Messiah is going to be born in this particular city 700 years before it actually took place. And so if you and I were the ones ordering the world, we would say, well, Mary and Joseph need to be living in Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is going to be born. Uh, but that's not how God designed the world. He actually had Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth. And so how is he going to fulfill the prophecy while the, those who are going to bear the Lord live in another city? And it, he could have some sort of family emergency that they need to go to Bethlehem for. Perhaps there's a legal matter that they have to deal with privately. But rather in the Lord's providence, he does it by the hand of Caesar Augustus. And um, so how did he arrange for them to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Um, God ordained that the hand of Caesar would decree that there should be a census among the Roman Empire and that every man would have to go to his home city to be registered there. We're familiar with this passage from Luke. Um, and so God put it into the heart of Caesar to go decree that this would happen. And so everyone went to go obey the order of Caesar and Mary and Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And if you kind of think about it, it's pretty amazing that God would... Um, order it in such a way. John, John Piper said it this way. He said, um, you have a decree for the entire world in order to move two people 70 miles. And uh, it, it, the, the term he used to describe it is providential overkill. Um, it's like God ordered the world in such a way so that, that he would bring about his plans through the hand of the emperor of Rome, unknowing to, um, unbeknownst to him that he was participating in this. John MacArthur says of this that God uses the means as well as determines the end. And so the question for us is whether we are going to be ignorant of how we're used by God or whether we are going to be active participants and willing instruments in God's hand. Um, MacArthur continues by saying that prayer is the means by which God, God's infinite wisdom, infinite power, and perfect purpose are brought together to accomplish his will. And so when we pray... Um, as God's called us to do, we are showing that we are in need and that we trust that God is going to um, be the one to meet our needs. And so he calls us to pray persistently um, so that he can fulfill these needs for us. It's part of his plan, but he also calls us to be a part of his plan. And so we should apply this logic to our prayers. God has graciously chosen to use us in the outworking of his design for the world. Um, so how could we not participate in this great undertaking that he's put before us? When we come to him in prayer um, and we are persistently asking for our needs, both small and great, to be met in him, um, we show that we trust in God and God alone to fulfill them. And so um, that's the main message of these two parables on prayer. And um, I hope we can apply that as we go from here today to see that um, God has called us to participate in his working of the world. Any questions? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Um, we thank you that you give us prayer as a means to communicate with you and as a means to um, show that we trust in you to do all that you've said that you're going to accomplish. Um, you're so gracious that you would allow us to participate in your plans and that um, you would use us as feeble and ignorant as we are to go accomplish the great things that you've set before us. Um, we ask that you would help us to be willing and active in all of this and that we would earnestly pray to you for all of the things that you put before us, um, that we'd be persistent in prayer and that um, we would come to you frequently with all of the things that, um, 
that we face in life and that you would be sovereign over them and work through them for your glory and for our good. Uh, we love you and we thank you and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks everyone.